Fortunately, I have all my scriptures typed out here, so we'll be all right. Okay. Uh, So the question that I received, I'll read it as it was written. Says, didn't Jesus die on a Thursday? And they cite Matthew 20:19, Luke 18:33, and John 2:19. Uh, in the tomb three days and three nights. Why is Friday always thought of as the day that Jesus died? Uh, referring to Good Friday that we celebrate during uh, the Holy Week uh, of Easter. So let's start by reading those scriptures that were cited here after the, the statement, didn't Jesus die on a Thursday? Uh, they're, I'll be going through them quickly, so if you want to try and keep up with some page flipping, you may. Um, Matthew twenty nineteen, And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Luke eighteen thirty three. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And then John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the the asker of this question also says, In the tomb three days and three nights. So I think it's important to also look at the, um, the reference Matthew 12, 40. Where it says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it is definitely three days and three nights that we're talking about here. Now, it's also important to note, uh, for as we continue, there's a lot of discussion about whether he was raised on the third day or after the third day. There's a lot of translation uh, discussions there. I believe there's... Uh, passage in Mark that seems to be more conclusively after the third day. Uh, so that also impacts how we understand things. Because if Jesus was raised on the third day, then he wasn't in the grave three full days. If he was raised on the third day, then he was in the grave for two and a half days. If he was raised after the third day, that means he had to be in the grave for three and a half nights, actually. So either way you cut it, there's going to be this sort of uh, problematic half day that we have to uh, figure out a solution to. So the, the, the first question asked, didn't Jesus die on a Thursday? We'll take a look at that a little more closely after we examine the second question. Why is Friday always thought of as the day that Jesus died? Well, the scriptural basis, I believe, besides the tradition and the concept of Good Friday... I believe we can find in Mark 15. Now, Mark 15 is the place you're going to want to turn, because that's the one we're going to be looking at um, most this evening, Mark 15 and 16. And the first verse we're going to look at is Mark 15, verse 42. Mark 15, verse 42 says, And when evening had come, Since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So now this is talking about, this is after Christ has died, um, about, uh, they they were basically in a hurry to go ahead and get him prepared and get him buried because they didn't want to be working uh, on the Sabbath. So when the evening had come after Christ's death, uh, they were in a hurry to bury him since it was the day of preparation before the Sabbath. So when we hear Sabbath, initially we may think, Saturday. And in that case, the day of preparation, Christ's death, was on Friday. Now, there are some who would argue uh, that this is certainly a Saturday because uh, they, they propose that this day of preparation was specifically tied to what's called the seventh day Sabbath, or that is a Sabbath that falls on Saturday. But we know that that is not the case because of what John 19 verse 31 says. Since which John 19:31 says, since it was that or since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the key there is that it says for that Sabbath was a high day, which I'll come back to in just one second, because what this picture is painting here 
uh, like I said, the bodies would not remain on the cross. So they're trying to hurry, get them off so they don't have to be working on them on Saturday, uh, on, on the Sabbath, uh, that the bodies would not have to remain up through the Sabbath. But John says that Sabbath was a high day. So now we see this distinction between what was called the seventh day Sabbath, which were always on Saturdays, and a high day or a high Sabbath. Now, those are more what you could consider a floating Sabbath. So in the same way that we have holidays that are on fixed dates, for example, December 25th, it's always on a consistent date, but it's not always on a consistent day of the week. So the high Sabbaths were on consistent dates in the Jewish calendar, which means they could fall on different days of the week. So that Mark 15 reference, talking about Jesus dying before the Sabbath, and John telling us that it was a high Sabbath, means that it was not necessarily a Saturday. So now we need to try and look through Scripture to see what day it might have been. And I think the place we start for that is in Mark, we'll stay in 15, um, because we can see that Christ dies in Mark 15, verse 37. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And we know that was before the high Sabbath, because of what verse 42 says. When evening had come, it was the day of preparation, that is, before the Sabbath. So Christ dies before the Sabbath. And then in Mark 16, verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Now, why is that important? Well, we see that that happens after the Sabbath. But now if we look, you can say in Mark, I'll read uh, Luke 23, 56. This is talking about those same women. It says, in Luke 23:56, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. So if we understand that verse chronologically, that means they prepared the spices and then rested on the Sabbath. But Mark 16:1 says when the Sabbath passed, they bought the spices. So what that tells us, if we believe that, if we understand that chronologically, they rested on uh, the Sabbath, got the spices and prepared them, and then rested on the Sabbath again, which gives us two Sabbaths in this week. So Mark 16:1 saying when the Sabbath passed, they got the spices. The next verse, Mark 6, uh, Mark 16:2 says very early on the next day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So the first day of the week after the Sabbath now, we're talking about Sunday, which means if we place all those verses together and we get Luke 23, 56 between Mark 16, 1 and Mark 16, 2, our timeline looks like this. Christ died on a Wednesday. Because the high Passover was on the Thursday. Because they purchased the spices and prepared them on the Friday between those two Sabbaths. The seventh day Sabbath being on the Saturday and the first day being on a Sunday. So, that satisfies three full days and three full nights. Particularly when you account for the fact that the Jewish calendar is counted differently than ours. We go midnight to midnight for our days. The Jewish calendar goes sundown to sundown. So if Jesus died on a Wednesday, at sundown, what we would call Wednesday night, was their Thursday evening. So Christ dying on a Wednesday, being buried in time for Thursday night to come, keeps him in the grave Thursday night, Thursday day, Friday night, Friday day, Saturday night, and Saturday day. Meaning, Saturday night... What? We had Saturday day that he was in the grave. We're talking Saturday night now. 
Saturday night seems to be the, the resurrection time of Christ. Because on the first day, when they go back to the tomb, so this is early on a Sunday, right? John tells us that it was still dark out. Um, Mark says the sun had just risen. The, the women go back to the tomb and Christ is already gone. So, and Megan, Megan uh, got to hear me work through this several times, so she's already heard my conclusion that Sunday is actually not Resurrection Sunday, but Discovery of the Resurrection Sunday. Because as far as we know, three full days and three full nights could be satisfied with Christ's resurrection late on Saturday night. Or early on that Sunday morning. So the key verse comes back to being Luke 23:56, that says, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath day. They rested. If we understand that chronologically. That means Christ died on a Wednesday, was buried before the high Passover on Thursday. The spices were purchased and prepared on Friday. The seventh day Passover occurred on Saturday and either late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. Christ was resurrected, giving us the discovery of the resurrection Sunday. That's the best uh, answer I can come up with there. So in in, uh, more precise terms, uh, why is Friday thought of the day that Jesus died? Because a cursory reading of Mark 15 says it was before the Sabbath. And didn't Jesus die on a Thursday? Seems like it was actually on the Wednesday. Now, do any of the brothers have anything to add to that or any corrections or thoughts to uh, provide? When you say Wednesday, you're talking about a Gentile Wednesday, which would be the equivalent to a Jewish Thursday. Not quite. It says that uh, in, in Gentile terms, Jesus died at 3 p.m., which means that was Wednesday by both accounts, Jewish terms and our terms. They were trying to bury him by sundown, which means they were trying to bury him by a Jewish Thursday night, which would have been our Wednesday night. So the death was on Wednesday either way, either uh, calendar. They were trying to bury him by Thursday night, which would have looked like Wednesday night to us. Thursday night, Thursday day, Friday night, Friday day, Saturday night, Saturday day, and then being resurrected either Saturday night or early um, Sunday morning, our time. Well, it seems like they managed to squeak it in right before Thursday because they were trying to get him buried so they didn't have to do the work on the Passover day. So that period of time between 3 p.m., and sundown, they had to work in preparing him and getting him in the grave. Uh, right, because if we look at, yeah, three and a half at that point. Uh, right, into the fourth, and that's correct. That's what we have to have. If Jesus was, like I said at the, at the beginning, if Jesus was raised on the third day, you only have two and a half. If he was raised after the third day, you have three and a half, either way. You're going to have a half day that you have to deal with. Correct. Right, right. So then you would just. That no, that would just if if that was the case, then that would lead me to believe that it was the Saturday evening and that they discovered on the Sunday morning. Right. So that makes that. That leans me towards him actually being resurrected late on the Saturday evening. Which again, discovery of the resurrection Sunday. And of course, the, the takeaway message here 
is to completely take out the days of the week and see that Jesus died and was resurrected, right? All right. All right. Well, if there's any other comments, if not, we'll go ahead and move on to whatever the... I think uh, Brian's next, according to the order of questions. Brian? Brother Brian. Okay. Mine is why is Christmas on December 25th? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mine is that was very good, Andrew. I never heard that before. Um, mine is I'm just going to read it verbatim. Can your name, or as it was presented to me, can your name be erased from the Lamb's book of life? So the questioner, to assume that a person's name would have to be in the Lamb's book of life for it to be erased, right? So that's what I'm going to take it as, the assumption. So that would mean that a person's name would have to be written in there and then erased. Well, I don't see that supported anywhere in Scripture, Um that would indicate that there'd be, you know, a reneging of a promise, right? That here, if we believe that you can be saved uh, by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting as your Savior, and in doing so, all the promises, as was prayed, are handed to you, that somehow you would able to be, those would be taken away somehow. Well, I don't believe that's the case. If a person's a true believer and Scripture would support that, um, that it is not that, but where would we find something where perhaps somebody would think about that, where their name would be erased? Well, the only places I could think of is actually two places. One, uh, in the beginning of our Bible in Genesis, Moses says to, to God, as he's pleading for them after the golden calf incident, that, you know, or he's, I don't know if it was particularly that one, but he's pleading for them, telling them, blot me out of your book. Now, whether that's referring to this book of life, it, I don't know. The point is he was asking God to, to, to take him out of something so they can be spared. But I think more in the questioner's mind, maybe it refers to Revelation 3. We'll just read the verse and then we'll, we'll just make a few comments. Revelation 3, verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. So we come to this statement. And this statement, while it might seem maybe difficult and we look at it at face value, we actually use this type of language in everyday language. Um, I actually had to look up this word, and I've been practicing saying it with my sister. Uh, it's ligot, right? Anyway, the, the, the style that we speak, we use this a lot. You say, well, how does, um, you might you know, see somebody or, or uh, a man or a woman, you say, well, he's not or she's not that bad looking. And what, what, what now, in, in the context, it could mean two different things. It could mean that, by pointing out the negative or amplifying a negative statement, you're saying, well, they're really good looking. Or it could be somewhere in the middle road. But here in the context, he's saying if you overcome, now we didn't read the whole thing. If you do this, right, these are letters to churches. If you overcome, if you conquer, I will not do this. You will never find this. You never find yourself in this situation, right? So he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, positive, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That's a negative. But he's pointing out the negative to amplify the positive. Now, the Bible's not unfamiliar with this language. In, in, um, in Isaiah, we often uh, go to this or we say this when we, you know, we're out there speaking and and uh, somebody will, in, in passing, just say, the Lord, 
the Lord's word will never return void. Well, let's read what that says. It says here, for my word, so my word be, uh, so my word that be, uh, goes out from my mouth. This is Isaiah 55, 11. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I succeeded in the thing that I sent it. So he, it's not that God's words are empty, right? He's pointing out a negative thing saying that, listen, my words aren't empty. When I speak something, it's going to come back to me and accomplish its, its task, right? So he's pointing out something negative to amplify the positive. Hebrews also, um, there's another one in Hebrews 6. There's, there's many. I mean, just go through your day uh, this week and, and count how many times you actually use that type of language. But in Hebrews 6, it says this. It says, Hebrews 6, 10, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and your love so that you shown his name, that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So the idea is not to, to just look at it face value. So, well, look, God is unjust. He's not going to remember us. No, it, you understand in the context that God is a justful God and that the things that you do for him, he's going to reward you later, right? You would believe that. I mean, you wouldn't want to suffer all that persecution, you know, and serving him be for naught, right? There is something, right? You're serving him not just for the reward, but it, 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 the example is there. But back to our, our passage more locally, he uses this in other, I highlighted here, the other churches. And look at in Rev, Black and Revelation, sorry, flipping back to 2, Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Right. The same idea. If you conquer or if you're faithful to this word, the second death won't affect you. So pointing out the the negative right to amplify the positive. And then one more in the same chapter in three, three, twelve, it says the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. I will write his name. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God in, in New Jerusalem, which has come down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So he's going to make him a pillar in the temple of God and he will never go out of it. So you're going to be fastened in there secure and you never have to worry about that, that you would anyways, that you're going to be taken out of it, right? You're there permanently. And so, again, back to what it says. It says, is it possible for a person to be raised from the Lamb's Book of Life? I would say plainly no, because that would indicate that a person could lose their salvation somehow. If they genuinely came to Christ in faith and, you know, is a true believer. Now, of course, only the Lord knows people's hearts. Um then no, their, their names are permanently, permanently in there. And I think that fits with this description. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So is there any other comments? Yes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It just was presented as can your name be erased from the land's book of life. But I, I don't think it. Um, it didn't expressly say that, but of, yeah, of course. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of teaching out there out of um, Christian circles. Now, the world, you know, what they call Christian, but that would indicate uh, especially there's a there's this, you know, it's an extra burden on a person to think, well, 
what haven't I done enough or have I done to get my name removed or lose my salvation, right? There's something, there's an added element that's not, that's extra scriptural. And um, if somebody's introducing something more to Christ's plan of salvation or Christ's terms or God's terms of salvation, then that person's not saved, right? They're introducing something to God's uh, offer and that person's not going to come, right? He's not going to be there. He might be close or that person might be close, but um I, yes, we, I, I think as a, as a, a, you know, this church definitely preaches that, that the Holy Spirit is down payment, right? Those who are true believers, the Holy Spirit has indwelt them. And um, that's why, you know, the Christians around this room, we have, uh, not all the time, but we have happy faces when we walk out of there. We can lose houses, jobs, um, even sometimes loved ones, uh, unexpected circumstances, but we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have a promise in God that nobody can take away. And so you can tell the difference between a true believer, right, and those who are still, you know, in that circle of uh, maybe even juggling with whether they're, you know, saved or not or losing their salvation. But in any case, God is true to his promises. As we often quote, his word will not return void. That also means his word of wrath and punishment, right? So the things that he says he's going to do to the world and the unbelieving world is going to happen, right? doesn't necessarily mean that when I speak the gospel, everybody in the room is going to get saved. No, it means when I speak the gospel, the negative is also going to be true of them, right? If they don't come by faith, they're going to suffer the eternal wrath of God's... Yes? Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, a proper understanding of the gospel leaves you uh, without fear of losing your salvation, which means those who typically uh, fail to understand the gospel are the ones that often come up with this idea that I can lose my salvation That's right. Sure. Right. And as a young person, I remember getting saved a thousand times, you know, and especially when, uh, oh my gosh, his name slips in mind, Phil Geichma, when he used to come by and do his, uh, his, you know, his little things and hell pitches. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go there. Now, now, an adult can be like that too, right? A proper understanding. But I, do I believe I was a true believer? Of course, you know. And, you know, we can look at fruit and things like that to, and, as an examine, you know, of yourself. And actually, that is scriptural too, to examine yourself, right? Whether you be in the faith or not. But in any case, I don't want to sidetrack too more. Yes. Um, off the top of my head, I, I do not know. I haven't studied this, but I, I have thought, and I just want to submit it to the brethren. If, if I can do that at risk of being, well, it's just risk. <laughs> but Revelation 22.19 says, uh, starting in verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So I agree with what you're saying, that sometimes we use the negative to accentuate the positive. And in, 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 the other, in, in, in Revelation 3, that makes sense. But here, it seems to be saying that there are those who would add or take away from the words of this prophecy which it's hard to imagine a believer doing that. But if there was some unbeliever who would be removed from the book of life so that he would not experience the very blessings and promises that this book is trying to say that the believer will experience, well, then how did his name get into the book of life to be removed by the Lord himself? So then it makes me ask the question, is every human being's name written 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, I like when Mo, in Moses's case, I don't think he was actually referring to that in Revelation when at the great white throne. Right. There's the book of life open. I think he might be actually talking about just being alive. Right. God's record of who's alive in this world. God's history book. So he's saying, listen, take me out of this world. Now, I can't stand on that. Right. That's just my observation. Moses, take me out of this world. Please let them go through this and live. Right. So I don't think he's referring to that. So that would indicate that there's other books. Does could that be? Of course, right? I mean, could it be another book of life? Why not, right? Why not? So, I don't know. I mean, to answer your question, I don't know when, if you're talking about the actual, you're talking about the actual great right throne book of life, or are you talking about the book of life here? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about when is a person written and when is a person... All right. Uh, who's next? Jamal. Jamal. No corny jokes from the beginning. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for that. That's definitely a, a tough one. All right. Um, my question came from a young child, which uh, would think would be an easy answer, but the more I think about it, the more I, I make it complicated. So I'm going to try to keep it simple. Here's the question. As it was written, and it was given to me, it says, When David was born, did he have blood of a king? Right? Didn't give me a verse, a reference, or anything. Just when David was born, did he have blood of a king? So I began to think. I began to look in Scripture. Right? So... When you look in scripture for this idea of blood of a king, you get zero. There's no such thing in scripture. The concept of blood of a king is not really portrayed in scripture. So to answer the question, no, he didn't. But if the writer of the question implied or was thinking about, did David have an inheritance of a king before he became a king? Then the answer changes. And I, Follow along with me. Be patient with me. I, I know it's a lot, right? So David was of the tribe of Judah, right? Right? And so thinking of the tribe of Judah, I went all the way back to Genesis, uh, the second last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 49. There, where, when Jacob, the father of those 12 tribes of Israel, gives his blessing and cursing to the 12 tribes and very interestingly, there, when he talks with Judah, he says of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the, uh, from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall arouse him? Now, the key is verse 10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Okay. So, according to the prophecy of Jacob here towards his children, one of the blessings of Judah is that Judah was going to be at least the governing body in Israel. They were going to be the line of rulers in Judah. Now, we know the history of Israel. There was no necessarily a king in Israel all the way until the days of Saul. Now you say, well, Saul was the first king of Israel. The Lord anointed Saul. Saul wasn't from Judah. 
And that's true. He wasn't from Judah. Now, why, why was that so? Well, uh, I don't want to get too ahead of our studies on Sunday morning, but Saul was the people's choice. It wasn't the Lord's choice, right? And he was anointed as not king, but commander of the inheritance of God. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, I believe, the Lord says, you've been anointed as commander of my inheritance, right? Which is different from when David was anointed in chapter 16 of Samuel, and he's anointed as king of Israel. So, <laughs> to answer the question, did David have king's blood? Well, he had a kingly inheritance by the prophecy of God through Jacob, right? Uh, there was nothing special in his blood. There was nothing in him that was special except the Holy Spirit and the Lord was with him, right? And the Lord chose him and anointed him. And through David and the kingly reign of David, there was a great blessing to the children of Israel and to the world, right? Through, ultimately through the son of David, Lord Jesus Christ, was come forth. I hope that was not too confusing and too convoluted. Is there any additions or subtractions? Yes. That is correct. That is correct. God, in his permissive will, right? The people said, we want to be like all the other nations, right? We want to be like all those around us. And they desired to have a king like the other nations, tall, handsome, ruddy, and so forth. And so he gave them their desires. That wasn't his desire, right? That was never the Lord's desire, right? And it's interesting to know what the Lord calls Saul, a commander of his inheritance, not the king. In, in, this is between 1 Samuel 10 and 16. Any other comments, clarifications, additions? I, I hope that wasn't too confusing to the young child who wrote the question. Okay. All right. Next is David. Well, that was actually me that asked that question, so <laughs> just kidding. Um, very, very well thought out answers. I could uh, understand the, the, the question where Andrew got was a little confusing. I get emails from, from bosses saying, please have this done by such date. Our interpretation of such date, my meaning is the end of day. Come the morning, why isn't this done? So uh, I could see where the confusion comes from, but it's very beneficial to look into the scriptures. My question, uh, again, doesn't have a reference, but it's, it's a good one to think about. And it's, it's difficult to, uh, I guess, say a quick answer. Why did Jesus leave? Now, talking about Jesus, when you, you, the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned, is talking about uh, God incarnate, the human aspect of the Lord, right? Jesus walked physically with a human body on earth. Why did he have to leave? Well, instead of uh, trying to come up with my own answer, it's best just to answer with scripture. Uh, the quick verse that comes to mind, a lot of kids say it in their memory verse. John 14, let uh, not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Here we see it's a very intimate setting with the Lord and his disciples where he's telling them what the plan, what's going to happen, that he's going to be taken, and he's trying to give them comfort, trying to give them peace of mind. I'm going, but I'm going why? Because I expect I am going to see you again. So with that mindset, he's going back to the Father, he, and he ascends to the Father after he's resurrected. Um, and, and he, he is witness of the 12, uh, Mary and Martha and the 500 people see him. They see that he is resurrected. And, uh, historically that's, that's, that's fact. It can't be disputed. Um, recently I've heard some, some of these, uh, debates between, you know, Christian apologist and, and an atheist person. And, and the, the atheist person would go on to say, you know, Jesus Christ existed. It's, it's undisputed. Jesus Christ had many followers. It's undisputed. And all his followers 
believe he resur- resurrected. Historically, it's undisputed. The difference is they don't want to take that as evidence. So Christ ascended back to the Father. Why didn't he stay? He goes to prepare a place for us. How exciting is that? My Father's house, there's many dwelling, many mansions. Imagine in seven days the Lord created the heavens and the earth. Seven days, the beauty that we see was created in seven days. Well, he's preparing a place right now as we speak for us. All things were made by him. Without him, there's nothing that was made that's made. Imagine what wonders the new heaven will be. It's one, one answer that I could think of. Another one, uh, I briefly mentioned it this morning. We could turn uh, Hebrews chapter 10. In a sense, when, when the Lord departed the earth, he gave a commandment to his disciples. Go, spread the gospel to Samaria, to Judea, to, uh, to all the other nations and abroad. Go. So the Lord's work here, his salvation work, was his, his, his work on earthly work was done. So he departed, but he left a ministry for us, the believers, to spread the word. And we do that nowadays in our work, in our schools, in the mission field, right? But now the Lord is in heaven and he is with the Father, seated at the right hand. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse, I'm sorry, Hebrews 7. I was thinking of another verse. You know, your plan of salvation is, is not dependent on you. We have our faith on him who is able to save us. Verse 25, wherefore he is able to save them, speaking of the believers, to the uttermost that come unto him by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. We have a high priest who intercedes for us, who when we fail, he intercedes. He is an advocate between us and the Father, for there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, the Lord Christ Jesus. So he is, even now, he's preparing a place for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the saints, uh, were the, the best reasons that I could think of. I didn't know if any of the congregation has any other input on why Jesus had to leave. Yes. Amen. 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 And he didn't. He did not depart. Is right in, in John fourteen. He he says, "I'm leaving, but the Comforter will come after me." And and praise the Lord that we have the third being of the Holy Trinity here with us, dwelling. Amen. Any other comments? Shall we close in the word of prayer? Or did you have, you had some? No, we have one more. But oh, we have one more. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, please. Who is it? Ron. Ron. Cheesy jokes at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, they Okay. Well, good. It's been intriguing, and it always is intriguing when um, we we search the scriptures like this, right? Find new things, and and uh, we don't want to take it for granted because you know there are those who who make accusations that you know men have manipulated the Word of God to make it what it is. But we don't want to be afraid of researching it and digging into it and saying, well, maybe you know Jesus died on a Wednesday and. You know, and uh, not taking it for granted just because somebody else said it. It's a great exercise here. I have a, probably the easiest of all of them, Matthew chapter 21. And the question is, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Okay, Matthew chapter 21, and we'll just read the passage quickly. And um, I'm supposed to be in North Miami Beach right now, so I won't be long. Okay. Uh, uh, We read here, uh, now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry, speaking of the Lord Jesus, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and he found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, uh, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered. 
And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So there's actually a whole lot here. There's more in this little passage than just the cursing of the fig tree. But we're going to sort of focus in on the fig tree, as it were. And to kind of maybe preclude or to, we, we talked about this a little bit this morning uh, in Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to just say that the, the big answer or the easy answer to the question is, why did Jesus curse the fig tree was because he was indicating a time of judgment. Okay, it was a time of judgment. We read this morning during the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 4, it says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read, and, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he'd opened it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, to recover the recovery of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, right? Uh, to proclaim the acceptable time of the Lord. And then it says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, sat down and the eyes of all of them were on him. And he began to say to them in verse 21, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's, this is linked very closely to this passage in 21. You see, in Luke, in the beginning of the Lord's Jesus, Lord Jesus' ministry, he was proclaiming judgment was going to come. Right? He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled. But it's not completed yet. Right? I have some things to do. By the time we get to the period of time in Matthew chapter 21, you know, the, Je the Lord Jesus had been going in and out of Jerusalem. And, you know, he never spent the night there. He always left and then he would come back. And this is on the heels of that time that he would go into Jerusalem and he would walk into the temple and he would turn all the money changers upside down and he would he would sort of upset the things as they were. He was upsetting them. And he says, you've taken what God has designed and you've turned it into something that it's not supposed to be. So he was when he and by the way, when he went into Jerusalem that time, you remember he went in and there was a throng that followed him from Bethany and there was a throng that came out of Jerusalem. There was a multitudes of people that came to see him and they were shouting to him, Hosanna, blessed be the name. Right. The Lord, you are blessed be your name. Hosanna, I, you know that passage I'm talking about. So anyway, so we understand this as the triumphal entry, right? There is an indication here that this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied, right? This is the fulfillment. So now it says here in the morning he goes in, a lot of things we get out of this picture. He was hungry, okay? We see the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He had to be a priest who knew our Pains. He had to be a priest who was familiar with us. But then he looks at the fig tree. Now, the fig tree is um, is a picture, is an illustration all through Scripture of Israel. And I looked at a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Let's see if I can find them. Uh, in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah uh, 8.13, Jeremiah writes and he says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Later on in, in Hosea, uh, Hosea chapter 9, it says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the fruit on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Right. So Israel is illustrated, the fig tree illustrates the nation of Israel. Okay, And of course in Joel as well. So when he comes by this fig tree, he comes out of the temple, he looks at the fig tree and he curses it. Well, I think why he cursed it was because he was expressing this is the day of judgment. And there was, in a lot of ways, a, 
um, uh, a warning, a warning, okay? A warning that if you reject me, the consequence of this fig tree is going to be the same consequence that you're going to deal with. So the fig tree was cursed because it was the introduction of the fulfillment of the judgment of Israel. And by the way, that time when he had left Bethany and went into Jerusalem, he wouldn't leave. He would be crucified and he would die there. That was his final entrance into Jerusalem. So the fig tree was cursed uh, because the Lord Jesus was introducing and warning the nation of Israel about the judgment to come. So and there's a lot more in this passage we could look at, but I think we'll just leave it there and open it up for some questions. All right. Well, maybe we can pray now. Amen. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word and for the challenge that we have and the privilege that we have to, as the Bereans did, to study the scriptures. And uh, what what richness it 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 equips us with. You know, we think of when the people would see the disciples and they would ask for alms and and the disciples would say, silver and gold, I, I don't I don't have what I have. You know, uh, I give to you uh, be healed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, such great riches. So much we have in your word. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you utilize it to stimulate us to uh, strengthen the kingdom of God, not make it bigger necessarily, but that would be good. But we understand there are few and there are many. Um, so, Father, we pray that you would utilize us and uh, be strengthened to establish the kingdom of God here on earth until your return or you take us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.